0: Hello, and welcome to Pulp Today, episode 31. Cheers. Mm. And thanks for watching. Today, I'm going to do something I didn't think I was uh, necessarily ever going to do on this little podcast, which is I'm going to read something I wrote. It's technically the first piece of writing I was ever paid for. Uh, I did a podcast with Fanbase Press last week uh, with my friend Brian Dillon, and uh, we talked about my first ever writing job, and I thought, you know, it would be funny to to do that as part of Pulp Today, because it was absolutely printed on cheap paper. Here's the surprise that's not a surprise, because you saw the title of the episode. First thing I ever wrote was a Star War, first thing I ever wrote professionally, it all goes back to my best friend from the seventh grade, Michael Stern. Michael was working for West End Games, uh, which was a big role-playing game company in the late 80s. There was no Star Wars material being produced really at that time except the role-playing game at West End Games. The Marvel Comics had wrapped up in 87, 86, I think, with, a, with Joe Duffy's great run on it. Um, I don't think there were any original novels. The movies were obviously out of production, no cartoons, no nothing, just the games. And Michael was uh, very nice and got me, uh, we had bonded, we met in 1977. We were both 12 years old and we bonded over Star Wars and it became a central part of our friendship. And years and years later he offered me a, a gig and the editor that I was working with at uh, West End Games offered me to write this book Paranoia, Vulture, Warriors of Dimension X. My name's on here somewhere. There we go. David Avaloni. Joseph Anthony wrote the first part of it, I guess. This was a fun gig, and I liked it, and technically my first writing job, but I got paid very little upfront for it, so I was kind of starving while I was writing it. And I reached out to Michael, who had been writing all of the Star Wars stuff for West End Games, and he said, you know, we're doing Star Wars Galaxy Guide 5. I'll give you... Uh, I think it was fifty bucks a page to write five pages, and I know that done in nineteen eighty nine, two hundred and fifty dollars was something very helpful to me. Cry now if you want. Star Wars Galaxy Guide number five: The Return of the Jedi. Like I don't know how familiar you are with role playing games, but uh, they put out these rule books, and they're illustrated. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's the standard role playing game stuff, which is you know, let's find a character, Jabba the Hut. You know, and we write a little bio of him. And his dexterity is two D, and his knowledge is three D, and his strength is sixty. I don't, I don't know how that works out with the with the brawling. But they peppered it to make it more lively, amid all of the statistics and history lessons, with short stories that would illustrate things that happened off screen on Return of the Jedi. I cheated a little bit, and did a story. I did four stories. Uh, yeah, four stories. Three one-pagers and this one two-pager, which I call Dark Voyage to Tatooine. Cops are coming for me. I cheated and told the story of uh, Boba Fett's perspective of leaving Cloud City and going to Tatooine. And what happens to him en route. And then that property uh, kind of expanded in ways that I did not expect. And that I think it's kind of funny and ironic to comment on now. So, uh, without further ado, I will read you Dark Voyage to Tatooine, Codicils. I'm 23, 24 when I'm writing this. I'm super bad at coming up with fake sci-fi names in the Star Wars universe. I warn you now, the Imperial pilots have embarrassing names. Uh, And I don't think this was heavily edited. I think this one is pretty much as I wrote it. Let's find that page. Uh, Dark Voyage to Tatooine. Now, one of the conceits of these books is that the uh, the stories are sort of filtered through this this narrator named Vorinnal. So this is a f- the, the, there's a little forward written by Mike, I'm sure. The following report was culled from Boba Fett's personal log. The log was found aboard Fett's ship, Slave One, which was captured by the Alliance following the destruction of Jabba the Hutt's sail barge. Vorinnal deciphered the log and turned Fett's dry factual entries into a narrative story. Here we go. The Cloud City landing platform was bathed in the golden light of a Bespin sunset as Boba Fett strapped himself into the control seat of his starship, the Slave One. However, the feared bounty hunter took no interest in the beauty around him as he prepared for launch. His attention was absorbed by several other things, all far more important to him. Foremost on his mind was his cargo. The carbon-frozen Han Solo would soon bring him great wealth from the coffers of Jabba the Hutt. This, in addition to the considerable fee already paid him by Darth Vader and the Empire, would give Fett more money than he had ever made on a single job. This was truly a catch worth celebrating, but in his hard life of cold violence, Fett had long since lost the capacity to feel triumph or elation, or any other emotion for that matter. All he felt was grim satisfaction for a job well done. He quickly suppressed that satisfaction. The job wasn't over yet. For a professional hunter, no job is ever over, until the client has his body and the hunter his fee. Fett went methodically through his liftoff checklist, keeping one eye on the Imperial Stormtroopers guarding the platform at all times. It was unlikely that Vader would double-cross him so late in the game. The Dark Lord had much better opportunities earlier, but trust was a concept alien to Boba Fett. Therefore, he was quite ready when the launch plant platform doors opened, Fett immediately ignited his lift thrusters and activated his weapon systems. He didn't like to be rushed, but he was even less fond of being caught unprepared. His foresightedness was proven out as blaster fire lashed from the door and Imperial troops fell dead. Calrissians double-crossed Vader, he thought calmly. Interesting. He carefully thumbed a control. Within seconds, he was airborne. As he fled into space, he saw the diminutive figure of a woman firing at his departing craft. Princess Leia Organa had somehow escaped Vader and a squad of stormtroopers to rescue Solo. This earned her Boba Fett's respect. Few has, have ever escaped from Vader, and the woman had done it twice. Fett had declined to hunt the princess when the Empire had first posted a reward for her capture. At the time, Fett assumed that tracking and subduing one former ambassador in her early 20s would not be a challenge worthy of his skill. Now he'd have to reevaluate that opinion. Once in space, Slave One glided effortlessly through the Imperial fleet. One of the great advantages of working with Vader had been guaranteed protection from Imperial prosecution, though, even now, Fett did not trust Vader to carry out his part of the bargain. As he approached Star Destroyer Avenger, one hand fingered the hyperdrive control while another focused the blasters on the tractor beam generators of the destroyer. He couldn't really harm a Star Destroyer, but his weapons were strong, far stronger than the Imperials imagined, and if they tried anything, they would pay. Fett did not enjoy passing under Imperial guns, no matter what the occasion. However, he had to clear the fleet before he could make the hyperspace jump to Tatooine. As four TIE fighters fell into formation around him, he increased speed to maximum. He was well aware that they were probably just a formal escort, a typical Imperial courtesy, but he didn't allow ships to fly this close to him under any circumstances. As the TIEs accelerated to match his speed, he thumbed the comm link, turned to a secret Imperial fighter emergency frequency. Back off now. Fett intoned, his dead machine-like voice striking the same chilling chord the Imperial pilots were used to hearing from Darth Vader. The fighter escort slowed down and let Slave One streak on ahead. They followed him, but from maximum range. Fett forgot them and went into hyperspace. In hyperspace, Boba Fett slept, since he was incapable of re- relaxing his guard. Boba Fett only slept soundly while aboard Slave One and in hyperspace. How soundly may a man with the blood of hundreds, perhaps thousands, on his hands sleep? We can only guess. While Fett was as free of conscience as any man who's ever lived, it must be remembered that, in the end, even Darth Vader felt regret. Perhaps the ghosts couldn't find him in hyperspace. One thing is sure, Boba Fett did regret his hurried exit from Bespin. As his ship emerged from hyperspace near Tatooine, a warning klaxon roared through the ship's cabin, snapping awake instantly, he discovered that a homing beacon had been insinuated into his navigation system. Whenever the ship reached Tatooine's system, the beacon would go off. Slave One, so carefully designed to be invisible to all electronic detection, was now sending a signal to some unknown enemy. As he silenced the alarm and jammed the homing device, he wondered who could have done it. Vader? Jabba? Solo? Had Solo known all along that Fett would capture him and bring him here? Setting Fet up for an ambush by his friends? Highly improbable. Must be someone new. Speculation was futile. In any event, Fett expected he would learn soon enough. He activated the deflector shields and brought all weapons up to full, scanning space visually and electronically for approaching enemies. He did not wait long. He saw the starship rising out of planetary orbit at the same time his ship's systems did. The slim needle shape was instantly recognizable. It was a custom job, probably. FET reflected the only vessel in the galaxy whose only life support system was in the small cargo hold. It was the IG-2000, the starfighter of IG-88, the assassin droid. Its droid pilot was second only to Fett as the most feared bounty hunter in the galaxy. A military experiment gone wrong, IG-88 was programmed to kill. That was just what it had done, starting with its inventors. After they were destroyed it killed for whomever could pay. Hired, along with Fett, by Darth Vader to capture Solo, IG-88 had taken the precaution of installing a homing device on Fett's craft. The clever droid had reasoned that the odds of catching the Corellian were in Fett's favor. If the droid didn't find Solo first, perhaps it could steal him from Fett. Unfortunately for IG-88, Vader had arrived before it could strike. Therefore, the next step was to go to Tatooine and await Fett's arrival there. If the bounty could not be collected from Vader... IG-88 would surely get the one offered by Jabba the Hutt. Interesting, thought Boba Fett as he watched IG-2000 streak toward him. IG-88 must have some secret weapon or he wouldn't dare engage me out in the open like this. Experimentally, Fett fired his blasters and performed an evasive maneuver that brought him out of the IG-2000 path. His shots exploded the oncoming craft. A decoy of some kind. He scanned for another craft but found nothing. Not good thought Fett. Suddenly another IG-2000, obviously the real one, appeared out of hyperspace, roaring at full speed, its blasters peppering Fett's craft. His ship rocking with the blast, Fett admired the daring and skill of the attack. Not many ships or pilots could plan a jump with that much precision so close to a planetary body. He wondered if it would work. Fett turned Slave One into a steep dive for Tatooine, the IG-2000 close on his tail. The droid's blast began to take their toll on the Slave One's deflector shields. Surrender your prisoner and you have a 30% probability of surviving this encounter, IG-88 declared calmly over the comlink. Fett did not deign to answer. He was busy diving his ship into the powerful gravity well of the planet below. IG-2000 followed. I am far more capable of withstanding the gravimetric pressures than you, IG-88 continued. This tactic has a 0% probability curve for success. At that moment, Fett activated... Slave 1's unique inertial dampening system, abruptly halting the craft's speedy descent, though at the cost of destroying the ship's hyperdrive engines. The IG-2000 swept past in an instant, directly into the path of Slave 1's weaponry. If IG-88 was ever surprised in his long bounty hunter career, that was the moment. IG-2000's forward shields were instantly vaporized by Fett's ion cannon. Attempting an evasive maneuver, IG-88 found his craft immobilized by the combined forces of a powerful tractor de- beam from Slave 1 and the strong gravitational pull of Tatooine. His victim completely helpless, Fett dragged IG-2000 closer to him. He wondered if IG-88 could see the concussion missile tube pointed at his craft. He wondered if IG-88 could feel fear. He fired the missile and the most ruthless assassin droid from the Holowan Massacre became a shower of microscopic fragments burning up as they entered Tatooine's atmosphere. Fret regarded the spectacle for a moment, then took his ship to a more stable orbit, programming Mos Isley spaceport as his final destination. He wondered if anyone would be willing to pay him for destroying IG-88. It was worth looking into once he landed. Before he could land, however, an Imperial patrol frigate hailed him. As the larger ship came into view, Fett once again activated his defenses and weapon systems. This time, however, he was sure they would not be needed. This is Imperial Patrol Frigate Guard Star. Please step down from defensive posture and transmit identification and authorization beams. Fett did not bother with a personal reply. He merely activated a hologram transmitter that had been a gift from a recent business associate. On the bridge of the Guard Star, the hologram of Lord Darth Vader suddenly appeared and spoke. This craft travels under my personal protection. No Imperial agency shall detain it or its pilot under any condition. Slave One continued, unchallenged, on its way. I totally, I totally did not read. I dropped on the fly the section with the Imperial pilots because it's just too embarrassing. It's too embarrassing. But they are named Lieutenant Rignick and Flight Commander Mallet. I mean, can you blame me? I, who, who, wants, who's, who wants to hear from those guys? So, 1989, I write Boba Fett versus IG-88. Send it off. I didn't really know or think about the fact that Boba Fett was a super popular character. I didn't know that you really weren't supposed to murder named characters. But I did it and sent it off. And is, as is often the case, as far as I knew, nobody read it. Nobody heard of it. It vanished. I never thought of it again. Until, can't remember how many years later, maybe three, four years later, maybe less. I'm in Golden Apple, my favorite comic book store in L.A., located still on Melrose Avenue. And I see, among the action figures, this. Battle of the Bounty Hunters. Boba Fett vs. IG-88 on the back Boba Fett versus IG-88 part of the Shadows of the Empire event which was one of the first new spin-off events a little little short version of my story on the back crack it open and not only do you get some pretty awesome action figures look I'm not the guy that keeps it in a package but I wrote that so I kept one in the package and I, you know I opened the other so you could you know so you can play phew uh so that and I open it, and inside, there's also a comic book by Dark Horse, who I think had obtained the Star Wars license at the time. It says, script is by John Wagner. Never met him, never heard of him. Special thanks to Lucy Autry Wilson and Alan Couch at Lucasfilm. A bunch of people from uh, from from uh, Dark Horse are mentioned. And uh, so... You know what I just read you, right? Uh, here's Boba Fett saying, or, or here's IG 88 saying, "Boba Fett, surrender your prisoner, and you have a thirty percent probability of surviving this encounter." Uh, inertial dampers on. Remember that? Remember the, when the inertial dampers went on? That was fun. Uh, and uh, there's there's IG Two Thousand being blown up. I didn't write "The Better Man Wins," Droid, and I and I feel pretty I feel pretty good about that actually. You think, well, that's kind of funny. They turned it into a toy. I think it was seventeen ninety-five. So if they sold three of them, they four of them, they got the money back. They paid me for writing the story. But that's not all. My brother-in-law came back from San Diego Comic-Con one year when I, I couldn't go with the pop-up book. The pop-up book. There's him blowing up the decoy. Boba Fett Surrender your prisoner and you have a 30% probability of surviving this encounter. Say, let's see see who wrote this one. Script by Ryder Wyndham. Third guy. Editor Lynn Adair. Special thanks to the same people. Dark Horse. Got a year on this thing. 1996. Okay, so it was was almost six, seven years later after I wrote it. You know, and this one was, I think, 1995. I don't know if there was a Star Wars pop-up book before this. Me, and this is just me, no disrespect to those two gentlemen, they may have had no control over it, but if you gave me something to adapt, if you gave me, say, a short story someone had written and said, turn this into a comic book script, me, I just did a Rodney Dagerfield thing, (laughs) no respect, me, I would have said, well, it should say story by David Avaloni and script by, that would be nice, you know, even though I used some of the guys' dialogue. You know, acknowledge that I didn't come up with this. And look, I didn't invent Boba Fett or IG 88. So, you know, I'm not, I I don't expect anything more out of this experience than that. But it's just kind of this funny anecdote that I've had all these years about how I wrote a Star Wars and it got turned into a bunch of expensive toys. And my friend Brian Dillon at Fanbase Press, who's sort of a Star Wars, giant Star Wars mega fan, wanted to talk to me about this the other day. And he kind of reminded me that the first episode of The Mandalorian. Primarily, the big action beat is a, a, a Mandalorian, Pedro Pascal, and IG-10, uh, Taika Watiti, sort of kicking ass and conflicting and kicking ass and conflicting, and then the last episode does that too. Now, you know, I take zero credit responsibility in for influencing that, because the influences are so many and pile up. Including the fact that has John Favreau ever seen this? Maybe. At some level does do we connect from the Empire Strikes Back, you you know, you could make the same decision I did. You could look at that deck full of bounty hunters and go No one wants to see a story about Zuckus. Zuccas? Zuckass? Not that interested in Bosch, you just isn't he Bosch? is Bosk Bosch? Pear. He's the, the one that looks like a Gorn a little bit, I think. I'm going to be roasted if I'm wrong about which one is boss But IG-88 is the most interesting thing on the deck other than Boba Fett. So if you're writing stories about Mandalorians, which, by the way, that backstory, that noun, Mandalorian, that proper noun, was first heard, first written, I think, in The Empire Strikes Back, where it was referred to that... Uh, Originally, the Boba Fett costume was intended to be worn by a squad of super commandos, troops from the Mandalore system, armed with weapons built into their suits. That was never on screen. It was never canonical. And I think then just years later, someone went back to this one piece of information and went, sure, Mandalorians. That's thats who wears that stuff. Anyway, like I said, not taking any credit for anything, not asking for any more credit than I'd be given. I've always compared it to being a mason working on a piece of gothic architecture. I didn't design the thing, not my plans. Someone pointed to a, a cornice, someone pointed to a window and said, fill, that, fill that, little, that little blank spot in on this giant structure, this unbelievably giant structure. And it, is an, it was an honor and a privilege and one of the great joys of my early career that I got to do that and that I still get to do that and that uh playing with other people's toys as it were other people's toys but anyway that is the story of how I made a Star Wars and how a vague echo of it made its way into the Mandalorian and how much of a kick it is for me I haven't I don't really remember the first season well enough I have to go back and look at it again but someone Brian told me that he that thing about speaking in probabilities and the way I I was the first person to write dialogue, I think, for IG-88, and that style has become canonical in the series. And that's, again, it is it is the tiniest thing. It's one sentence in a 7,000-page epic. But it's cool to have. So that's it for me this week, Pulp Today. I read something of my own, which I didn't think I would ever really do. Until next week. Uh, live long and prosper, or whatever the kids say these days. I know. May the first be with you. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.